I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. see, see. It, it looks something like this. Hello and welcome to the Football Media Podcast. I'm your host, John McKenzie, and I'm joined by Matt Murphy, assistant video editor and a football writer at The Independent. Matt, how's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, well, apart from sounding like I've spent a night on the town with Maurizio Sarri. <laughs> yeah, you've been a bit under the weather. <laughs> a little bit, but, um, <laughs> you know, coming, coming out of the brighter side of it now. <laughs> this week, I spoke to Colin Webster, game designer and creator of the football strategy game Counterattack, about his experiences of developing a board game modelling football. But before that, Matt and I are going to cover some of the important news stories from the week in football media. So, Matt, you had something about Chinese football fandom. Yes, so uh, there's been a report by Copper90 suggesting that Chinese football fans are the most digitally engaged in football. So the findings part of the Modern Football Fan Report found that uh, their fans are the most active on social media. Uh, There's more than half of them posting memes, video clips and images online compared to an average 40% across um, other countries that were involved in the survey. It also found that it doesn't just stop at the men's game. um, It's also the women's game as well. And uh, ahead of uh, the Women's World Cup, there's 63% of fans plan to watch highlights of of that this summer and over half of them plan to watch uh, China's games. It's quite interesting. There is quite a buzzing and building interest in, in women's football in particular, but especially in China, it, it, it doesn't shock me as, as you know, football has, has grown in its interest ac- across the world, you know, especially in, in the Far East, but uh, and, and, and the involvement in social media in itself as well. Uh, so and because China has, you know, it, it makes sense in in some ways as well, because China has um, the biggest population um, that there are more and more people. But it's actually by percent as well. So um, so it's it, it, it's interesting to see that that as a country has um, has had such a surging interest. Yeah. The thing that I find really interesting about this is the, the fact that the report sort of highlights unique support cultures amongst Chinese football fans. And this is something that I came across when I was talking to Dan Olowitz, who is the football editor at Japan Times, uh, something that you just take for granted as someone in the West that you support a football club in a certain way. And generally speaking, the countries around will, will have a similar sort of football fandom. But the report does highlight that Chinese football fans are less tribal and more likely to support players rather than clubs uh, and also commonly support a second national team compared to fans in the USA, Brazil and the UK. So I think one of the things that we're going to start seeing more and more uh, in the football media is an awareness that when you're catering to fans of uh, from different countries that there will be different cultures of fandom that have to be taken into account so that's the the, the main takeaway that i had the other thing is again we're seeing uh, something that george and i talked about last week we're seeing more and more outlets looking to find untapped markets so i guess the 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 sort of questions that will be raised will be the same sorts of questions about will we see a sort of mass migration into a market and then if the profitability of those markets doesn't appear as uh, as high as there was once thought will there be uh, what we're kind of seeing a little bit in i mean we talked about copper 90 last uh, week but 
that that sort of a migration away from a market. So how how is this going to affect the face of football media in the future? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on either of those two things. Well, I think if you look at China in particular and uh, the focus on the amount of players that have moved over there in the last years, I don't know if that's if that's died down as such in the last couple of seasons. I know that there haven't been as many movements from Premier League clubs over the last season, but there is still that much amount of interest for you know tv rights within that area and so if if that continues to build as well if if they use examples of this survey and other things it could it could see um you know certainly some competition for um some viewing time on on uh, on sky sports and the likes eventually I mean, you could be seeing the very beginning of a time where people's attention is actually split between different leagues and, and not just uh not just the premier league as for the, the 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 changing face of football in China, I think the, there's been certain directives that have been pushed by the Chinese government, in particular Xi Jinping, the Chinese uh, premier, who originally was encouraging clubs in China to bring over international stars into their into the, their leagues. But I think now there's there's been more of an outward facing move, so uh, encouraging Chinese businessmen to buy up football clubs elsewhere. So I wonder whether or not that is actually playing into the changing face of football fandom as well. Let's move on. I wanted to talk about athletic soccer. It appears there's significant change underway for soccer coverage at The Athletic, one of the major US outlets. It broke yesterday that a few writers who've been covering specific MLS teams for the site were telling everyone that they're no longer needed, uh, added comments that the site is moving away from the beat writers for specific teams and moving towards more regional MLS beat writers. Uh, so I think that they're, they're looking at having a beat writer that covers a number of teams rather than a single one. Caitlin Murray, who is covering the Portland Timbers, uh, tweeted yesterday, heads up to anyone who subscribed for me. I'm not writing for The Athletic anymore. I've declined offers to cover the US Women's National Team and Women's World Cup exclusively for them. But now they've eliminated my Portland beats too. I'm also not the only local MLS beat writer cut. And there was a few other tweets that came out as well. This all comes in the same week as The Athletic announced the hire of Megan Linehan as women's soccer staff writer and the promise to cover the women's soccer, promise to cover women's soccer, quote, from every angle and on the merits of the game itself, end quote. So again, something we touched on last week with George, it seems as though a lot of outlets are really targeting the Women's World Cup as a as a source of potential revenue. So it's what we were just saying then about the fact that people are looking into these untapped markets, people are looking into areas that they've not looked at before as an area where they can try and make some money from it and 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 this is this is the women's world cup as well. It's it's women's football in general and it shows that there is almost a high amount of interest now in in that side of the game than focusing on local teams which which shows the the balance there i mean every, every media company has has a has a right in a way to to tinker and test with its with its style and i think the the athletics only 3 years old and so it is still in its kind of um early years but in the same way it 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 shows the lack of focus on on the actual writers themselves and there should be more support for for their journalists and and a, and a structure in that way to to kind of uh gauge some understanding with them about where the interest is because there is a worry that there there is more of a focus on just moving towards where the money is rather than focusing on the the individual teams itself. Mm, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Alongside that concern, I suppose my question would be, how is this going to affect the athletics model? They developed a, a model in the US where they've basically corralled all of the beat journalists, <laughs> the best beat journalists from the various teams around the country and brought them under the athletic umbrella, uh, which works 
I think fine in the US. They've obviously got um, the, the way that the sports news works in in the US is that you have local news outlets that take up a huge role in in the coverage of sports. My question becomes: How does the athletic model, which works really well for US sports, in particular, and, and by that I mean baseball, NFL, hockey, basketball, how does that then pour over into soccer? That seems to be the the thing that they're struggling with because obviously MLS isn't at the same level as those other sports, and and so I guess what they're trying to do is they're trying to um i suppose save their resources by saying well we'll have a a writer who'll cover these x y and z teams all at once rather than uh, individual beat journalists so i wonder whether or not the 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 problems here are the result of of, uh, as you said teething problems when it comes to um, rolling out their coverage into into the the u.s market so we will um, wait and see what happens there it could just be them going too early on on something like this because you know, we, we've seen that there is more and more interest in MLS these days and certainly more interest in, in football or, or soccer in, in the US. And so it would make sense for a publication to put more focus on these local teams. But, you know, as I said, they, they could have just gone too early and that the interest just isn't there yet, but it may be there eventually. And they're seeing, they're not seeing a big enough return than they might do with the likes of baseball and basketball and things like that. So, I mean, it, they might eventually come back to that. That, that is a hope there from, you know, from a journalist's point of view. But at the same time, it shows that there isn't enough of that, I guess. Now, the, the next topic of conversation is, and I'm afraid I've sort of foisted you with the one that sounds very boring, but um, you've got some thoughts on the European Union Copyright Directive. Yes. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one that may not technically affect the UK, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get into Brexit, <laughs> that's for sure. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it's described as a vote against content theft uh, publisher media associations across europe have um, welcomed this this vote in the european parliament that's been in favor of uh, of the european union copyright directive a law that will um, pave the way for the introduction of a europe-wide publisher's right the right will give for the first time publishers the opportunity to negotiate with major technology platforms for the use of their content at a fair price so the the two most significant articles of that uh, or some will argue controversial uh, 11 and 17 um some might know it if, if you're really interested in this stuff is uh, <laughs> article 13 um, the former states that search engines and news aggregator platforms will have to pay to use third party content while the latter uh, holds certain platform owners responsible for any content posted without a copyright license. Article 17 uh, also requires video streaming services like YouTube and Twitch to license copyright material. Um, so platform holders essentially have to start applying filters to recognize and block unlicensed content or require the rights to publish or broadcast uh, the content. So I'm guessing it, it, it's a benefit and also makes it slightly difficult in some areas because, you know, as someone who, who works in video in, in, in itself, uh, there is there are certain things like fair dealing where you can at the moment take things from certain uh, publishers with a fair amount within the public interest and use that uh, like certain 20 or 30 seconds of, of certain videos, for example. I know this stretches to, to, to pictures and, and, you know, GIFs and everything. It certainly seems like it's it's a positive thing, but at the same time, there could be real controversy 
uh, around um, the, the reasons behind it and what it could mean for, you know, the restricting of, of information and, and video, et cetera, being, you know, pushed around because, you know, there's been the encouragement more and more of people putting things out and available to people because people don't have Sky Sports, for example, they can't watch the Premier League, but they can watch highlights in certain places. But if there is more, if there's a heavier and heavier crackdown on things like this, then it will really restrict the information and the flow of, of um, content to everyone. I guess my initial response is that there's obviously two groups who are affected by this. So there's there's the, the people who are engaging with con- content creation at the beginning and then the people who are benefiting from that content creation on the other hand as well. So it feels like uh, when we both of us work in, work in the industry, so um, we're aware of the fact that people don't get paid enough for the content they create. So instinctively, to me anyway, this feels like a good thing. It's saying, well, you're going to have to start paying for the content that you are using, um, which is which is obviously something that we would both support, I think. Yeah. On the other hand, I suppose that there is a, there's a, the people who benefit from that content creation on the other side, and you kind of start thinking, well, is this going to simply end up with um, a, a huge number of independent outlets not being able to afford to pay people for content and so it will put everything into the hands of the bigger outlets so is this going to simply um, agglomerate the, the the bigger outlets as in a sort of monopolistic way it just feels to me a little bit like it's it's good stuff but it's also there could be a negative aspect to it as well yeah absolutely i mean you, you put it right just then because it's it seems positive but it depends where it leads us because forcing people to pay for the content that they use is is right obviously but in the same way it's then if they just start refusing that and if they start refusing that, then that could be, um, you know, it, it could be detrimental, especially for, you know, for freelance journalists. One final thing quickly. There's been news this week that Facebook are talking about paying journalists. I mean, Facebook are in the news every day. You could you could literally run a podcast, I think, on Facebook news. Uh, but the big news this week was that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg sat down with Matthias Durfner, uh, CEO of Axel Springer, and mentioned that he was thinking about creating a dedicated tab for news on Facebook featuring quote, high quality, trustworthy content, end quote. Now, there's a few other aspects to this. So he wants to ensure that this new section of Facebook would feature only the highest quality content. Um, and as a result, he considered the idea of paying publishers to feature their content and it would be available to users for free. So again, you're, you're getting a sort of similar good, maybe bad uh, vibe from this, but we can talk about that in a minute. But um, Zuckerberg estimated that around 10 to 20% of Facebook's audience would be interested in this new section. And this is not just an off-the-cuff idea, according to the Guardian sources. Uh, Facebook, who suggested that the product has been in development for some time and should be ready to launch by the end of the year. For me, this feels like it's something that George was talking about last week with Apple News Plus. Here's like, uh, there's a scary element to it in that you're putting a huge amount of power in the hands of Facebook. If Facebook are paying outlets for content, to what extent do those uh, outlets simply become subsidiaries of Facebook? There's also interesting news that came out this week about Facebook trying to roll out a local news um, reportage uh, uh, model w- within their platform as well. And in, But in certain areas, there is what has been described as a news desert. And so they're not actually finding enough news to run their local news platform. And that maybe comes as a result of the fact that local news has died as a result of big companies like Google and Facebook making it almost impossible for for, for that those things to run. So, Matt, what yeah. are your initial um, responses to it's, these? It's quite ironic, isn't it, that, that you're <laughs> saying that about how they could have killed off local news. But, um, yeah, I think... <sighs> 
as as everything with with when it comes to modern social media it's the monopoly isn't it when it comes to twitter and and facebook and i think you know i i often am, am a victim of that i i try and stop myself from constantly going to twitter and facebook for 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 my news because it's it's the luck of the draw you don't know what you're going to get um when when you scroll through but it is what a lot of people do i i don't think as many younger people are using facebook as as much but i and i think that might be why they're trying to opt for something like that which draws people back in to to look at news through that way but it also links to i mean you know the 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 history of supposed fake news being put on facebook and why they had to crack down a few years ago but um it, it would be a positive in some sense because if they would if they would start to pay people to uh, to start looking at real truthful content you know putting a real focus on on good high quality news then that would be that would be a positive but again as we were talking about monopolizing it would mean that it would take a lot of attention from elsewhere and would mean that people might go to facebook for their news rather than going elsewhere which i just it, it, it's a bit worrying because they would then just hold the key to telling people what whatever they want <laughs> Other things of note this week, The Telegraph have appointed Marley McElwee to work as a full-time journalist in the women's sports section that we talked about last week, so congratulations to them and her. There's news coming out of Vice UK that they are trying to unionise, which I think everyone is excited about, and the eyes. NUJ Chapel Committee expressed solidarity with their colleagues at Vice, so it will be interesting to see how this unfolds, and hopefully we'll have Will McGee from the iPaper coming onto the podcast in a few weeks time to talk about this sort of stuff so uh, look forward to that tiktok growth tiktok is a video app from china that has been notching up impressive figures worldwide uh, attracting serious attention from publishers it has currently over half a billion active users 40 percent of whom are from outside china according to sensor tower a u.s company that tracks apps tiktok added 75 million new users worldwide across the app store and google play last december which represents a 275 percent growth year on year from 20 20 million in December 2017. Instagram news. According to the latest Digiday survey of 189 media buyers, Instagram is now considered the ideal platform to reach audiences aged 20 and below. 37% said Instagram is the top choice, closely followed by Snapchat with 30% respondents preferring the platform to spend their ad dollars on. 17% media buyers would like to start their campaigns with YouTube, which rounds up to the top three. And finally, Amazon's Alexa announced this week that they have 80,000 apps available through that program. So again that may be something that we could talk about in future but from matt and me that's everything thank you matt for coming on thank you very much and now we are going to talk to colin webster about the football board game industry so it's a little bit of a left field thing for this podcast but that will be coming up after this This week, I spoke to Colin Webster, a game designer and creator of Counter-Attack, the football strategy game. Before we get to that interview, though, I just want to do a little review of the game because Colin was kind enough to send me a beta model of the game. And so and so I played a few rounds of the game with a couple of friends in the last few days. So here are our experiences of playing Counter-Attack. So we've just opened the, the tube that Counter-Attack came in. We have in front of us a playing surface, a set of rules some player cards which look like top trump cards there's a very weird french flag colored <laughs> tie clip that apparently is important uh, and then there's a little blue bag full of counters so you've got two football teams and a football a dice 
and a egg timer. Yeah. Is that everything? I think so. What are your first impressions, Alex? You're the design man. Well, aesthetically, it looks really nice. I assume like stuff like the counters would be actually produced as opposed to written on, and the cards yeah, would be yeah. a better material, but it looks really professionally produced. So I'm quite interested in just getting into it and actually... I guess seeing the strategic side of it, um, tr- trying out different things, it looks like that sort of game. We have to kind of think about it, um, maybe a bit more in depth. Takes a bit more of a initial learning curve before actually jumping in and just being able to play really quickly, which mm. kind of puts me off a little bit at the start because like, oh, it's a lot of effort to learn. But I think most games like that, the the long term kind of appreciation of the game just increases, and it becomes a game that you then explain to other people, and it becomes something you kind of get better at, at the more you play, as opposed to just being good first time sort of mm. thing. Yeah, I'm excited to to start having a play. So let's get the rules read and see where we go from there. Before we go on to review the game, I just want to give the listeners a sense of how it is that counter-attack is played. If you play the game, there is a football field which is made up of hundreds and hundreds of little hexes in which the players move, plus the ball around, shoot, cross the ball, take corners, set pieces, free kicks, penalties, etc. Exactly the same way as a game of football would function. Now, the basic unit of counter-attack is the movement phase. In the movement phase, the attacking team can move four players according to how much pace they have. And then the defending player can respond by making five defensive moves, after which the original attacking player can move another two players a short distance if they so desire. Once the movement phase is finished, then the player in possession of the ball can make a decision about what they do. They can pass it and then do another quick pass straight away. They can do long balls, they can do a cross, or they can dribble with the ball and, and enter into another movement phase. Now, there are other ways that you can, for example, take a snapshot during a movement phase as well, but that's the basic unit of the game. And I think for me, the movement phase actually reflects the dynamism that you get in a game of football. It's it's good that in every movement phase, there is the chance for the opposition to respond and then the attack team to then respond again and that's the the basic unit of the game but beyond that you can do everything in counter-attack that you can do in a normal game of football and so the game ends up being very realistic anyway back to our review so we've just finished playing the game which i so happened to win 2-1 <laughs> but we had a good time playing it what was your what were your in- initial thoughts alex did you did you have a good time playing counter-attack yeah i love this game i think there's a lot of strategy involved so my initial impressions as i say wasn't I thought the strategy would be would definitely be involved, but I think actually going through a full game, um, I guess we're partially learning at the same time, but mm. very much the decisions that you make throughout the game clearly have an impact. So I think, yeah, with the dice, there is some luck involved, but overall, it's very much the decisions that you make and the players and what position you put the players in, uh, how you pass and all that will actually make the, the impact. So mm. I, I particularly enjoyed that aspect. What were your thoughts on the the learning process because obviously we've played one game and it was the first game we played and in many respects we were experimenting with things just to see how they would work just to make sure that we'd gone through all the various iterations of what could happen so what were your thoughts about the learning process yeah um i think it was quite steep not so much for the gameplay because once we started playing i think it was actually really straightforward mm. um the concept i mean is football so it's, it's it's fine to understand that very quickly yeah, there's a lot of variables in terms of what actually happens. But I mean, the first thing that came to my mind in terms of what could make it easier for me, at least, would be to have a, like a two minute video almost on YouTube that I can just load up, watch that. And it straight away explains the whole game in a very kind of high level vo- sort of way. And then I can go over on the channel and look at uh, a one minute clip about how free kicks are taken and a one minute clip about how um, tackles are done and kind of segment it into maybe 10 little clips. Mm. 
And that might make it a bit easier to kind of digest and actually just get into the game as quickly as possible. And I think maybe that will make it kind of a more easy way for people that maybe don't want to spend kind of half an hour, 20 minutes or whatever, kind of learning the rules and yeah. reading through the whole thing. It's just an idea. but I feel like we read through the rules and the rules are quite long and, and detailed. And they're, I wouldn't say they're complicated. It's just that you don't really know how it's going to work until you yeah. actually play it. So I think it was helpful that we just got to a point where we're like, right, we're just going to have to try this and play it. And I think one of the upsides of the game would be that there's so many permutations that you could play 10 games and you'd still be learning the strategy of it. Um, there's so much you can do with it. And the other thing that I liked about it was I thought it kind of it reflected football quite nicely. Yeah. Uh, there's a one time when you took a corner and you went quite attacking on it and then I got the ball back and then did a really quick counter-attack. And that won you the game. <laughs> no, I didn't score from that, I don't think, did I, in the end? Um, oh, no, that was the one that the keeper I was like one-on-one on one with the yeah. keeper, and it was, yeah, it came down <laughs> to a dice roll. But for me, that felt really quite accurate. And it's the, the movement phase, which is like the central part of the game, I think is really reflective of what actually happens in a football game. You know, you have to think about where do I place my player so that he has a good chance of being able to tackle this player mm. or... Where do I need to move this player in order to anticipate where you're going to be in in a few moves time? And I thought that that really came across well. So it felt to me very much as though I was playing a football version of something like Definitely. Settlers of Catan or uh, Carcassonne or something in that in that line. And I think that's what Colin, who designed the game, has been attempting to get to. So I think he was successful in that. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the game? The only thing that I was thinking maybe was, um, uh, I might have missed it, but maybe when it gets really close to the, the, the back line of, of the, the attacking side where you can basically shoot as if you were in front of the goal almost. And so maybe the, the really tight angles, which yeah. in a normal match would obviously be almost impossible to score, are actually exactly the same as if you were right in front of the goal. Maybe like some sort of corner section that makes you have less opportunity or, or kind of a negative score yeah. to shoot maybe. Could so be interesting to explore. Yeah, I guess you could get to the byline and it would be you'd be just as likely to score from the byline exactly. as you would be just outside the area so maybe thinking a little bit more um, along the lines of probable outcomes of shots from various areas might be yeah it might be a thing to do yeah but over, overall absolutely loved I think probably need four five six games to properly get into the different variations of strategy what can work what stuff could maybe not reflect football but is specific to the game that would work better than it would maybe do in an actual football match but overall really kind of just need to play a few more games to get into it really there's an interesting sort of scalability aspect with the the cards as well which i thought was quite a smart move so for those who don't know the game that well there is the possibility that you can just incorporate a card swapping element or card buying element into this so um that could be monetized in certain ways so you could the the game allows you to pick teams at the beginning and then you can position your players as 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 numbers as you wish and then work that into your formation so that you're thinking my my defenders i want them to have a good aerial ability um you might want a fast defender and a slow defender uh, but you're also thinking like when you're getting the ball into wide areas you want players who are good at dribbling as well uh, and i think that that's that sort of gameplay element works really well the the, the players I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's obviously difficult. I think probably from the like the whole copyright issue with players' names, and maybe that's not possible. But the idea of yeah having different players, some maybe some players are slightly more rare. I don't know. That it's a whole other area which maybe is not necessarily great for day one. Kind of. Um, launch the game with all this trading side but eventually that could be something that kind of again is explored into a bit more mm, yeah 
And that's, I think that's something that we picked up on as we went along. We became aware of what sort of players you needed to ha- have, yeah. what sort of capacities players needed to have in certain positions so that you could use them well. So there'd be scenarios where you would uh, win the ball back, but then you'd realise that your player had a really good tackling ability, but not very good dribbling ability, yeah. so you could then lose the, the ball quite getting, quickly. Getting your own players into enough space that the opponent players couldn't actually get to you was probably a, a big point that I, I don't think we properly explored, but that was really important to, to be able to get into the space and then calculate, okay, these players around me can only move four or five spaces. I'm safe where I am. They can't actually tackle me. Mm. So playing into space and being able to pass at that kind of point was also something uh, to, to be practiced probably and to, to consider. Um, so the the idea of having the, the time limit to it puts more pressure on, which makes the game a bit more exciting, I think, as well, mm. which is good. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely all positive there. So there you have it. Counter-Attack had two thumbs up from me and Alex when we played the game. If the game does sound interesting at all to you, then do check out Colin's Kickstarter page, check out his website and follow him on Twitter, all of the details of which are given at the end of his interview. But here he is, the man himself, Colin Webster, who designed the game, Counter-Attack. I'm joined today by Colin Webster, game designer and creator of Counter-Attack, the football strategy game. Colin, how are you doing? Oh, great. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Tell us a little bit about your background, because uh, this is a little bit of a left field episode for the Football Media Podcast, so I'll be interested to hear about how it was that you ended up in game designing. Okay. Um, most recent career, well, actually for the last 15 years, I guess, um, I've worked in education. So I, I was a high school teacher for a small time. Uh, I was a youth worker for a while too. And uh, these days I, I, I continue to work in education, but not in a sort of direct delivery kind of way, producing materials and so on. So I think there's probably some relation there between um, making people think and making things that people can interact with. It's really interesting that you said that you are used to the idea of developing materials to help people learn um, and that, that sort of plays into the, the background of, of Counter-Attack. So it's probably best for the listeners for you to explain a little bit about how Counter-Attack the game works. Okay, so in Counter-Attack you, um, you take on a friend at a game of football and it's a simulation of football um, rather than, say, a Monopoly-esque style football game where you move around the board and roll the dice and turn over a card and by Jove you've won the FA Cup um, in counter-attack you, you control a team of 11 players and every player in your team has a unique set of skills so they've got skills for or attributes rather for pace for tackling, shooting, dribbling etc so you have to decide where to deploy your players on the pitch and of course your opponent is doing the same and you can see each other's teams and then play by play you move through the process of passing the ball, dribbling, playing cross balls, heading the ball, winning corner kicks, tackling, shooting, and hopefully scoring goals too. So that's a brief overview of it. What sort of background do you have in terms of playing strategy board games? Is that something that you did a lot? And um, how did that sort of push you towards thinking of maybe doing one for football? Yeah, I really enjoy playing board games. My girlfriend and I play a lot um, at home, games like Catan, Ticket to Ride, um, I love playing Risk. I've got one for Christmas called Dead of Winter, a zombie apocalypse game. Um, so we play a lot of board games, um, either just the two of us or with the, with the, our children uh, and family come around and play from time to time. So it's become quite a, a big thing, hasn't it? Uh, board game playing is a real revolution um, in the take-up in that. So I play a lot of different board games and also football strategy games on the computer as well. And Football Manager, uh, I think every football fan seems to play. 
uh, championship manager before that and then all the other uh, manager games just really adored um, going all the way back into my childhood. So I think the combination of that love of football and in particular the football strategy alongside my board game love led to that development of counter-attack. That's really interesting. And to what extent do you think that counter-attack could be played by both of those subsets that you've mentioned there, the the fans of of board games in general and also fans of football strategy games like uh, Football Manager? Well, you know, when it comes to promoting the game to people online, I've more or less not bothered with the board game market. Um, There's certain places you could go to and influencers online that you could um, try and speak to. But I decided, and I haven't done any research in this, but I decided that your typical board gamer and typical football fan, there's maybe not a huge crossover between the two, not not a large enough one uh, for me to go and put all my eggs in the board gamers market. So I've very much gone down the route of approaching football fans and uh, championship manager, football manager fans in particular. And, and also tapping into this um, fairly recent, uh, maybe in the last decade or so, real growth in football tactics, people talking about football tactics, uh, writing blogs about it. And we see national newspapers have really picked up on this as well, um, where we've seen a, a move away from newspapers talking just about the minute-by-minute account of games to really analysing the strategies that different teams are utilising. And for me, I think that's where that's where I see the interest um, could be in this game. So that's where I've spent most of my time speaking to people. That's interesting that you say that you think the tactical side of things uh, is, is quite key to the game. Because one of the things that I think me and my brother-in-law, who I, I test played the game with a few times in the last few days, um, one of the things we found was that the actual the process of squad selection is quite enjoyable once you know the, the general uh, the basic gameplay principles of, of counter-attack. So uh, to, for, for the listeners, you get to essentially pick 11 players and uh, there's almost like top trump style cards that you can you can select and build up your team. The first time we played the game, because we didn't really know what we were doing that much, we, we just sort of dealt out 11 cards each arbitrarily. But in the, the the following games that we played, we actually we did a sort of draft. So you can we took turns to pick a player, and and then you sort of build your team up, and it's just great fun that you then essentially end up with eleven players, and you have to think about where you want to play those players on the pitch, what sort of formation you want to use, what sort of tactics you're going to um, um, take up, and so we found that that sort of aspect really quite enjoyable. So. To what extent do you think that is is one of the strengths of the game? Because we were thinking, you know, that's a really scalable thing that you could do. You can you could get into the sort of the card collecting market as well um, somehow. Definitely something I'm looking at, and I think it is something that's attracting a lot of people online to the game is is that uh, individual player side of things. So the the aim once the game launches is that it, every box would come with a pack of thirty five players um, who, yeah, as we say, have their unique skills. Um, but people could, if they wish, purchase some more. Like there'll be additional options to to purchase with more player cards, and the more player cards you've got, the more variety you would have in your game. Um, and I find amongst my group of friends, we play the game regularly. They're very patient uh, with me playtesting. <laughs> some real favourites have developed. In fact, we played the game last night with a couple of friends, and so all three of us were drafting teams, and we were all crossing our fingers to ho- hope we got this particular Argentinian striker who never came out. Um, but there was a real there was a tension every time we turned over uh, the cards at the start. So I, I think um, it is a really appealing part of the game. I've um, I've found amongst people I've been playing with and people I've been talking to online. And you know I always felt that it was a really crucial element of the game that the players would have individual skills, 
Um, there are other football board games out there uh, that I have played, and, and typically the the players are all they all have the same ability. That there's no differentiation between uh, the folks on the pitch. And of course, that's not um, a, that doesn't reflect what happens in real life. You wouldn't stick John Terry on the wing, um, for example. You would you would make best use of each player's individual um, attributes, and that instantly turns the game into a strategic one because you think very carefully about where you put the tricky guy who's good at crossing. He's going to be a winger, obviously. Uh, the guy who's maybe slow, but he's a great tackler. Well, he's possibly a centre half. So you, strategically. The player attributes change um, how you approach the game. In terms of licensing, have you considered actually using official players or is that just a, a way too costly to do? I haven't made any approaches. I think that it's definitely something I'd like to do at some point. I, I think um, there, I'd like to think there's an appetite for that, but I think I need to prove the concept first. Um, and that's why I'm going down the route of the make-believe players. But um, you know the the make-believe player thing is something I really have enjoyed too through um, all those sort of football management style games where you do have this make-believe universe, even in Football Manager, which of course is so uh, true and authentic in the first year you play it, but then you get all these regen players who come through and they become real legends in our own minds. Um, so I like that that element of having the make-believe in there too. Yeah, and I think that can work as well. I mean, it, there's, there's how many board games can you think of where, where people end up just collecting hundreds and hundreds of cards of essentially made-up characters, so there's no reason why it wouldn't necessarily work in football as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in talking about the way that you went about developing the game. So how long have you been working on Counter-Attack, and what sort of steps did you take at the beginning to, to sort of get the basics that you could then start honing? I think I first had the idea about five years ago that I wanted to develop something that was a football strategy, board game style thing. And um, I got very excited about it quickly. And I, I think that's my character, really, that um, an idea strikes me as something I like. I just pour a lot of time and, and energy into it. Um, and that's what I did uh, around about 2014. And um, spent hours and hours producing this game, mostly typing it up in a Word document, all the different rules. And then it would occur to me, oh, you need a new rule if... You know, if there's a player in front of you and you're trying to make a pass, you do a chip ball, and you know you think through all these different uh, scenarios that can happen on a football pitch. But the great mistake I was making was I was doing it all on paper. I wasn't actually uh, trialing it with a friend. And after a few months of um, working it all out on paper, and then eventually printing off a pitch and printing off another pitch, and you know, get trying to get the sizes right for all the um, little players who'd move around that pitch. I invited my friend Graham round to play, and we realised within minutes it was a terrible game. <laughs> it just didn't it didn't work. It was it was dull. It had far too many rules to it. You're forever stopping. Um, you had horrendous things like uh, setting up an opportunity to score, which would take maybe ten minutes, and then you'd shoot wide of the target, which is realistic. Of course, it's realistic, but it's not very much fun. <laughs> um, so we were a bit dejected by it. Uh, and me in particular, obviously, I'd spent all this time in it. So I'd more or less um, shelved the, the idea. And it was lingering in the back of my mind for the last five years. And then I was um, chatting to a colleague at work, a big football fan. And for some reason, the, the idea of the game came up. And we started speaking about this game that I'd made. And it was too complicated. And um, my, my friend Marco, he was really interested. He said, come on, let's, let's strip it down to its basic elements. And let's play one night. So we did. We stripped it down to 
uh, those basic points where players had rudimentary skills, there was a pitch, and all you could do was pass the ball. And we realised that night we had a lot of fun playing it. Um, so that rekindled my enthusiasm, and I went straight back into that mode, that hype cycle was right up to the top again, um, where I started producing, producing in my mind um, various different rules, but crucially this time kept playing against people. Uh, th- those playtesting elements with those very patient friends of mine helped hone the sk- hone the the rules of the game. So you you had that balance between realism and fun, which of course is really important if you're going to spend an hour and a half or whatever sitting at a table on a Friday night with a friend, and it's going to be a good time you're going to have, right? So um, we balanced those rules and we did things like trying to break the game. So how is there a rule that's overpowered or is there a player skill that's overpowered? And, and slowly you start to work out um, how to tone down those elements that might have too much of an advantage for one team over the other. Uh, and I've got to a place now where I'm really happy with the rules and I think the game flows really well and has that, that balance I was looking for. One of the things that we were um, talking about before we came on air was just we were just having a just a little chat about like the gameplay and one of the interesting things that struck me since talking to you is how how important it is for you to actually write the rules out in a way that's clear for people who are playing the game. So how much um, time and effort has gone into actually writing those rules in such a way that they are easily interpretable by anyone? Oh man, so much. It's it's a really difficult thing to do. The and, and I have to give a lot of credit to my girlfriend for helping tidy up the mess that I sometimes create. <laughs> I, I have a tendency to use 20 words when, when maybe five or six would do. Hmm. Uh, so she's helping to tone that down a little bit to make the rules a bit more approachable. And I get to see how the game looks through her eyes. And she's not particularly a football fan. Um, so I get to yeah understand how she's experiencing what I've written she gives me her input and we um, find the, the best way to write things up as a result. It's not perfect yet. We're still working on, on that, but um, more and more clarity is being produced. And it, my, my great fear until quite recently, when now a few people have played the game without me there, my great fear was the game relied on me being in the room directing, um, directing the route, the game step by step. But what I've since discovered now that I've done a lot of blind play testing is that the rules are pretty much at that point now that um, people find them easy enough to comprehend. Maybe need a bit more tweaking. You know, if I run this Kickstarter campaign for 30 days, it gives me those 30 days to sort of finalise all those fine points. In terms of the marketing side of things, I'm interested to know how much you've sort of explored the, the, the market itself. Are there comparable strategy games available like Counter-Attack for other sports? And is there anything actually like this in the market for football at, at all? Comparable strategy games for other sports? I'm afraid I don't know. Um, I've, I've fully... Uh, football's the only sport for me, I guess. Um, so I haven't tried any other uh, strategy games. So I couldn't say in that front. And football front, they're... Definitely have been other football board games. I've seen Kickstarter campaigns that never made it. Um, and I've played a few games from the past. Um, so when I was younger, there were various football games kicking about uh, that I've played. Subutio is a reasonably good comparative, um, up, up to a point. Obviously, it's football. It's, there's strategic elements to Subutio. It's a lot of fun, but it's um, more tactile and tactical, perhaps, one might say. I really enjoy playing Subutio, but in terms, but it's not quite the same feel 
um, that Counterattack has. There's other football games that are a bit more top trumpsy, like there's one called Kicks I bought recently. That's um, it's good fun. I play those that with my daughters. You turn over a card and you, you compare my stat against your stat, and and the ball moves as a result of that. So there are other football games out there, but it did really strike me that there isn't a popular football board game, given that that football is the world's most popular sport. It seemed that there was a, a gap in the market, and um, I was obviously hoping that I could produce something that would sort of fill that space. You've mentioned already that you're running a Kickstarter campaign, so talk us through that. I plan to launch the Kickstarter next week. I meant to start it today, actually, but because of negotiations with the manufacturer of the board game in China, or the potential manufacturer in China, um, I've thrown, thrown up a few things I just need to iron out before I can launch it properly next week with a sort of full confidence that I, I know everything about price and uh, delivery. Because the thing with Kickstarter, of course, maybe some listeners are new to it, is that you, you pledge a set amount of money that the creator puts on, on the product, the game in this case. And at the end of the campaign, if the campaign is fully funded, then that money gets released to the creator, who then gives it to the manufacturer, who produces the game, and then it gets delivered to all the various people. So there's a, there's a, a delay process that goes on with Kickstarter and I don't think everyone understands that, that you're not going to get your hands on the thing for two or three months um, from the point at which you pledge. So I'm about to hit launch on the Kickstarter campaign next week, and that's um, exciting slash nervous. I've set the page up and all the different rewards that people could go for, so you could buy the basic game for a certain price. I think it's going to be about 25 quid for the basic game. Um, or you can buy a sort of advanced version of the game with more player cards, more team tokens, etc. Or you can be in the game yourself as well. That's another option that I've, I've put in there. So you could be one of the player cards in everyone's box. So setting up that and making the videos for it, it's been a lot of fun, really. I really enjoy all those uh, creative endeavours. And it's almost ready to go. And I yeah, look forward to hitting start in it next week. But it's going to be a nervous period to over those 30 days or so to see if or how the funding comes in. Could you tell us how much it is that you are needing to make? Is that is that a secret? It's not a secret, no. It's um, public on the Kickstarter campaign. It'll be £6,500. And what that means is I can produce um, around about 1,000 copies of the game. Um, it's not, there's, there's no money making in this unless suddenly this goes incredibly insane and 50,000 people come and buy it. But essentially, I'll, I'll break even with the Kickstarter campaign and uh, it'll give me a bit of a stock to maybe slowly sell over the, the years that follow. Okay. And can you tell us how it's best to, to follow the, the progress of, of this? Can you give us the details of the Kickstarter yet or will we have to wait until that goes live next week? Yeah, they don't give you a URL until you hit the live button, which is a bit frustrating. Um, so if anyone wants to follow what's going on with Counterattack, I'm on Twitter, that's at CTR Attack Game, um, same address on Facebook, and I'm at counterattackgame.com as well, and, and obviously I update all these places with news about what's happening next. Yeah, and I'll make sure that we link to the Kickstarter webpage on our Twitter account when that goes live next week. So Colin, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie, Matt Murphy and Colin Webster. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the football media, but until then, have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.